sometimes uh, people or events turn out not quite the way we expect it to be. You know, like during the last year, we were all on Zoom, so we, I see the students on Zoom, right? And then when I see the students on Zoom, I, really, I just have a picture of what they should really be like. But this year, we are now seeing them in person, and then some of them, are students, did not turn out the way I expected. One was bigger than I anticipated, another colleague was a little bit shorter and more well-built than I anticipated. And when we see all these situations, you know, when the reality collides with our expectations, in these situations, we're just trying to brush it aside and just move on. But what if you have certain expectations of your future spouse and they do not turn out to be the way that you anticipate? So I have a student and he's in an, he's in an arranged marriage. So he has gotten to see his future bride over Zoom in a couple of sessions, you know, about about 30 minutes, and he's going back to his home country in November to get married. Now, what happens if his expectation of future spouse is not what he anticipated? Hopefully, they will work it out. Now, what if the person is not a future spouse, but it's God? What if our expectations or profile of who God is collides with reality and is diametrically different than what we anticipate. What happens then? And in today's passage, you see one story where Jesus, in terms of who he is and what he is supposed to do, is not quite what Peter expected. How did Peter respond? How will you respond? And so I'll tell here in this, uh, in this sermon here, I'm gonna tell the story and then after telling the story, I'm going to draw the big idea and then draw some implications for us, all right? So I'm going to tell the story, I'll draw the big idea and then some implications for us. Now, the story here can be divided into two parts. You know, the first part will be in terms of Peter's expectation. This happens in verses 27 to 30. And then after that, we have Jesus's clarification. So that Peter's expectation is that Jesus is Messiah and then Peter's, Jesus's clarification is that he is the Messiah who suffers. Now, this story in the Gospel of Mark is actually at a very important turning point in the Gospel of Mark. It's important geographically. So if you take a look, you know, if you've been following the story of the Gospel of Mark, in the first eight chapters, Jesus has been operating in Galilee. But now he's moving up to Caesarea Philippi, which is really one of the northernmost part of Israel. And from there, he is going all the way down to Jerusalem. And so from the chapters 8 to 12, you know, Jesus is now making his move down to Jerusalem, and then he stays in Jerusalem for the rest of the, until the end of the book. But this story here, this story in, the, in this we're taking a look at today, is also important in terms of the identity of Jesus. Because in the first eight chapters, no human has ever recognized Jesus and claimed Jesus to be the Messiah. Peter is the first one to do so. But from this point forward till the end of the rest of the gospel, Jesus continually then teaches his disciples that he is the Messiah who must suffer and who must die on the cross. 
So this passage here is at a very important hinge point in the Gospel of Mark. So let's take a look at the first part here, Peter's expectations, and Peter expects Jesus to be the Messiah. And I'm going to read it here. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ, that is, you are the Messiah. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about it. So from this point forward here, you know, Jesus is now at Caesarea Philippi. And as Jesus is now on the northernmost part of Israel, he is now making his move down to Jerusalem. And so here, as Jesus makes his move down to Jerusalem, he uses this language, the way, the way, the way. And this phrase here, the way, occurs nine times in just these four chapters and from chapters 8 to 12. And as Jesus travels on the way, on this way to Jerusalem, he tells his disciples that he will be humiliated, he will be rejected, he will be killed. In effect, the way to Jerusalem is the way of the cross. The way to Jerusalem is the way of the cross. But the language of the way should have reminded you of an earlier passage. In the beginning of the gospel itself here, in the third verse of the gospel, Mark quotes this phrase from Isaiah 40, which is to prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now in Isaiah, the way of the Lord, what is that? The way of the Lord is the way that the conquering king, Yahweh himself, would take to rescue his people from exile, to rescue his people from slavery to Jerusalem. So that when Mark now uses the way to describe Jesus' journey to the cross, it is also the way that the Lord will take to rescue his people from exile, but not as a conquering king, but as a suffering king. The way of the Lord is now the way of the cross. And this way, it's also the way of discipleship, which followers of Jesus must emulate. And that's why Pastor Tim, you know, has then entitled this set of messages, this sermon to be the way. The way of the Lord is the way of the cross. And the way of the cross is the way that disciples of Jesus are to follow. So on this way here, Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say I am? What's the word on the street about who I am? And this question is where the entire gospel of Mark, since chapter 1, has been heading towards. This has been headed towards this question. Because remember in chapter 2, when Jesus healed the paralytic that was laid down from the, from the roof, the people there, the scribes there, were wondering to themselves, who is this fella? Why is he talking like that? Who can forgive sins but Jesus alone? In chapter 4, when Jesus calmed the storm, what did the disciples say? Who is this 
that even the wind and the seas obey him. In chapter 6, Jesus is popping up all over the social media feed of the day as someone making astonishing yet impressive controversial claims, as someone who does impressive but yet says controversial things. Hashtag Jesus is trending. He is gaining so much popularity that it gets the attention of the social, the cultural, and the political elite. It even gets the attention of King Herod. And he wonders if Jesus might be John the Baptist whom he beheaded. Others say one of the other prophets, some others say Elijah. So that in response here to Jesus' question, Peter then just offers the statement, what he hears on the street that some say John the Baptist, others the prophets, others one of Elijah here. But Jesus turns towards them and asks them, but who do you say that I am? The important question is not what others say who Jesus is. The important question is who we personally say Jesus is. And why is this an important question to answer? Because who you think Jesus is will impact not only your present life, but your eternal destiny. Now, there are many fundamental questions to answer in the Christian faith. For example, what is man? Who is my neighbor? How should we live? But one of the fundamental questions to start us on a journey to God is this. Who do you say I am? Who do you say Jesus is? And notice here that Jesus does not care so much about what others say he is. Rather, he cares about you, about what, who you say he is. You see the necessity that everyone has to own their faith. You can say, my grandparents say this, my parents say this, my pastor says this, my friend says this, society says this. But through this passage, Jesus addresses each and every one of us. He addresses each and every one of us the same question that he asked Peter, who do you say I am? And Peter then responds here, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah. Now what does Christ, what does Messiah mean? The word for Christ there just means the anointed one. It used to refer to priests, it used to refer to prophets, or even to the kings who serve as God's vice region. But with the fall of the Davidic dynasty here, Old Testament prophets began to predict that God would raise up a future Davidic king that will rule Israel forever. He will rule in justice and righteousness, and that he would judge the enemies of God. The future Davidic king is the Messiah. How did Peter get this insight? How did Peter figure this out? In the Gospel of Matthew, you know, Ma Matthew tells us that God gave Peter this insight. But at the same time, the first eight chapters of Mark presents Jesus as the one who demonstrates the qualities of the Messiah. After all, he is the anointed one. He is the one that has been anointed by the Holy Spirit. He heals the sick. He casts out demons. 
He is the one that's stronger than Satan who binds Satan's house so that he can plunder Satan's house for the kingdom of God. He heals lepers, thereby demonstrating his ability to remove the impurity that defiles the people of God. He heals the lame, thereby fulfilling the Isaiah prophecy that he is the one that ushers in the end-time kingdom of God. He feeds the multitudes just as God fed the multitudes in the wilderness. With this CV, with this resume, it's not hard to see how Peter would have regarded Jesus as Messiah. And Peter's perception, expectation of Jesus as Messiah is right. For the earlier references of Messiah, for the earlier references of Messiah occurs in the first verse of the Gospel of Mark, where it says that this is the gospel of the good news of Jesus the Messiah. Peter is right, but he is not fully right. And that's why we have this statement here. And he strictly, and Jesus strictly charged them not to tell anyone. Because if the disciples rightly identified Jesus as the Messiah, why did Jesus warn them not to tell anyone about it? I mean, how can you start a movement if you don't tell people about who you are? The next passages here that we will see is gives us the answer. And Jesus tells them not to tell people about it is because their understanding concerning his identity is inadequate. Like the story of the blind man at Bethsaida that we heard about last week, the disciples see Jesus like a tree that is walking. They see Jesus like a walking tree. They need further healing to see Jesus for who he is. They need to see that Jesus' Nazarene identity cannot be understood apart from the cross. To see that Jesus is the Messiah who suffers for his people, that he is the king who conquers by suffering, who ultimately saves by dying. And so we take a look now at this here, Jesus' clarification. He is the Messiah who suffers. And let me read it here. And we began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter has called Jesus Messiah, but Jesus knows that their vision is flawed. And then he attempts to unpack, to heal their vision by unpacking what the Messiah means and what the Messiah entails. Notice that the first thing that Jesus begins is the Son of Man. He uses it, the Son of Man. Notice that Jesus does not address himself as the Messiah, perhaps to indicate that Peter's messianic understanding of as the Messiah is not adequate. Rather, he uses this cryptic term, the Son of Man. What, what does Son of Man mean, you know? In the Old Testament, the language of Son of Man is used to ref- in the book of Ezekiel is used to refer to frail humanity, especially in comparison to the power of God. 
But yet, in a very enigmatic passage in Daniel 7, the same language of son of man is used to refer to an exalted figure who approaches the ancient of days and then receives a kingdom that will last forever. And so Jesus probably used this title here, Son of Man, to express his solidarity with fellow humanity, but at the same time to affirm his messianic identity without the nationalistic, without the political overtones that is commonly associated with Messiah or with Son of David. Now this is not the first time that the Son of Man language has appeared. It has appeared in chapter 2. And it appeared in chapter 2 when Jesus says that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. It has also appeared in chapter 2 where Jesus says that the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. The Son of Man has, is the one that has the authority to define what the Sabbath means. And you can see that even the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is here infusing this language of Son of Man to be more than just a Messiah but that in somehow, in some strange way, that this Son of Man exercises the same authority that God himself has. And so he uses this Son of Man, and then he goes on to say here that the Son of Man must suffer many things, must be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days to rise again. And he said this plainly. Now all of this here, does not fit, does not cohere. It does not fit the common expectation of the Messiah during the early years of the first century. You know, there were various perceptions in terms of who the Messiah is, but all of them shared the same common assumption that the Messiah would be God's agent. It would be God's active agent to bring about God's deliverance of Israel the Messiah would be God's action hero to bring about the deliverance of his people. So within this framework, it is inconceivable that God's agent, God's active agent, would be passive. That would be so passive to be passively acted upon by others, to suffer things done to him by others and to be rejected. Yes, of course, there's a suffering servant passage of Isaiah, but the suffering servant passage of Isaiah was never connected, was never connected with the Messiah in the Jewish understanding in that days. And what's this talk about rising again on the third day? Yes, within the Jewish understanding, there was talk about a general resurrection of the dead at the end of time where everybody would rise again, the righteous would rise again, but to have the resurrection of one individual before the end of time, that is ludicrous. That is preposterous. And so you can just imagine this, you know, in terms of what Peter must be thinking. This is crazy. This is nonsense. This is not quite what I expected. Moreover, this is not just a slip of the tongue. It's not just a gaffe, but rather, Jesus said this plainly. He took pains to announce very clearly who he is. He took pains to explain it in depth. 
But what's surprising here is in terms of Peter's response. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. What's surprising is that when Peter receives this fresh understanding of who Jesus is, he totally rejects it. He totally rejects it. Now, we would have expected a disciple, when a disciple is taught by his master, to accept his master's teaching. But now, the disciple becomes the master, and the master becomes the disciple. It's like Peter now becomes a tough coach, you know, and then he chews out his protege. He takes Jesus aside and then rebukes him. You can just imagine G Peter saying something like this. Look, Jesus, snap out of it. I mean, we've got a good thing going here. If you want to go all the way to the top, if you want to appear on Israel's Got Talent, if you want to motivate the people and use your influence to take this country back for God, you have to stop talking like this. I mean, suffering I can handle, but being rejected, man, who likes to follow a loser? Nobody. You have to get back into the game. You have to amaze the crowds as you did before. How about instead of just feeding the 5,000 or the 4,000, maybe you should up your game and feed the 10,000. Here. You see that Peter, he didn't like the plot narrative that Jesus is weaving, and he wants to change it. He wants to rewrite the plot. Now, uh, both of my girls, they are all involved in a high school play at Stevenson here, an adaptation of Shakespeare's A Midsummer's Night Dream. And the play is directed by one of the teachers at Stevenson, and she decides how the plot should unfold. Now, can you imagine one of the student actors saying to the teacher, who is the director, this plot stinks. You should change the plot according to what I say it is. I mean, it's preposterous. But this is what Peter does. Instead of being a willing actor in God's drama, Peter now assumes the role of director and tells God's anointed king what role he should play in this drama. Instead of the world being a stage for God's production and God's drama, the world is now a stage for Peter's production. Why did Peter reject this vision of the Messiah? Because Jesus' teaching did not fit with his expectation of who the Messiah is. Jesus is not quite who he expected him to be. But what's amazing too, you know, is the response. It's a severe response to Peter's rebuke here. It's that Jesus rebukes Peter. And Jesus rebukes Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. I mean, I would have preferred a much more gentle, meek and mild Jesus, you know. He would say, Peter, you're mistaken. Let me just explain it to you again. But no. Jesus' response is severe. It's stark. So that in one quick move, Peter moves from being the hero of the narrative that correctly identifies that Jesus is Messiah to becoming the villain, to becoming the enemy, to becoming the one that hinders God's plan here. 
And that Jesus' response is severe because Peter's response of who Jesus is as the Messiah, who does not need to suffer, that that is a mere truth. That is a mere truth. And mere truths are more dangerous than obvious errors, than flat-out errors. And Jesus' response is severe because Peter was, in fact, acting as Satan. Peter was, in fact, acting as the tempter. He was acting in the same capacity that Satan did in the temptation narrative, where Satan offered Jesus the kingdoms of the world without the cross, where Satan entices Jesus to disobey the will of his heavenly Father. And Jesus rebukes Peter, and Jesus rebukes us, and he tells us that if we want to be his disciple, we have to accept him on his own terms, even if it's not quite we expect it to be. And this then leads us to a big idea this morning here. It leads us to this idea that we have to see Jesus as he truly is, and let us see Jesus as he truly is. We have to see him to accept him as he declares himself to be. We cannot create Jesus in our own image to address our own felt needs. We have to see Jesus as he truly is. Now let me draw some implications for us, some implications here. If we have to see Jesus as he sees himself, as he truly is, who do we then say that Jesus is? Who do you say I am? And Jesus here, it's not a good moral teacher. He's not just a prophet. He's not just a messenger of God. But the Gospel of Mark tells us that Jesus is the Messiah and that Jesus is the Son of God who gives his life as a ransom for many, to ransom people from slavery to sin. And in today's passage, we see that Jesus is God's Messiah. Jesus is the Son of Man who suffers, who suffers, who is rejected, who is killed, but who is also raised from the dead so as to vindicate his claim that he is the Messiah. It is vital to answer this question, who do you say I am? For this is the fundamental question to start us on a journey of faith. For Romans tells us, if we confess, if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, and we believe in their heart that Jesus has been raised from the dead, you will be saved. So that if you are not currently a follower of Jesus and want to find out a little bit more about what being a disciple of Jesus, talk to me after the, the sermon, talk to Pastor Tim, or talk to one of the elders after the sermon here. We'll be glad to talk to you about and to help you answer this question, who do you say that I am? But the second implication here, what prevents us from seeing Jesus clearly? What prevents us from seeing Jesus clearly? And all too often, like Peter, we have a tendency to create Jesus in our own image. We have the tendency to let our cultural narrative, we have a tendency to let our felt needs shape and drive our understanding of who Jesus is, what he can do, what he cannot do. And consequently, we have a tendency to put Jesus in a box, 
to have them conform to our preconceived notions or preconceived ideas of how he should operate. Let me give you an example here. And that one such misconception is that we relegate all too often God's work only to the miraculous arena. We too, all too often relegate God's work only to the miraculous arena. For example, you know, it's easy to affirm with Peter that God is at work when something miraculous happens. It's easy to, easy to say that it is a God thing when someone is miraculously healed or when something out of the ordinary happens. Yet, like Peter, we struggle to see that God is at work even when there are no flashy displays of miracles. We struggle to see how God can be at work when Jesus is abandoned on the cross. We struggle to see how God can be at work in suffering and in weakness. But scripture tells us that the fingerprint of God is everywhere, such that the very breath that we breathe, the very breath we, that we breathe, it comes about only by God's sanction. The very breath that we breathe is a God thing because it is a gift of grace from God. So we need to ask God to open our eyes, to have eyes of faith that will teach us how to see God at work in the normal rhythms of life, even when things are difficult. Let me ask another question then. How can we see Jesus and what he is doing more clearly? How can we do that? By saturating our minds with scripture, by meditating on God's word, and by asking the Holy Spirit to impress the truths of scripture into our hearts. And over time, we will see that God is like the great optometrist. He is like the great optometrist who slowly adjusts the prescriptions of our spiritual spectacles so that we are able to see him more clearly in different parts of our life. But the final question here, how will you respond when God does something that is not quite what you expect? How will you respond when God does something that's not quite what you expect? What if God unexpectedly takes away something or someone that you dearly love? What if God unexpectedly brings suffering and rejection in your life? Will you be like Peter and rebuke him? Will you play God and tell him that he has to rewrite the script? Or will you say, I don't understand, but your will be done, my God and Father, as in heaven, so on earth. Let me pray for us. O oh Lord, we pray for eyes of faith that will clearly see you for who you are. And that even when it is a difficult thing to accept, when we see you doing difficult things, things that are painful, things that we would rather not, help us, Lord, to embrace it. Help us, Lord, to say, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.